I just wanted to begin by saying hello. I'm Michelle, and I'm very, very happy to be here. The three-month course is a very special time, and being here at IMS is very special for me. And I can feel the power already of all of us being here together, beginning this journey. It feels so special and so powerful. I'd like to talk tonight about dissatisfaction and its opposite, contentment. It's one of the armies of Mara. Dissatisfaction. In regard to contentment or happiness, it's important to ask oneself, what are the conditions in one's life that cause us happiness? And what are the conditions in our life that create suffering for ourselves? And it's interesting sometimes to contemplate the image of a Buddha. You've probably all seen statues or pictures of the Buddha. You might look at this Buddha right now that's behind me. Why do you think the Buddha has that certain kind of peaceful smile? Whenever you look at a Buddha, usually there comes about a very deep feeling of peace and contentment. There's a feeling that there was an experience of coming home, a very deep place of inner security. That's what the image of the Buddha exudes, this very deep peace, contentment. And the Buddha said that if it were impossible to cultivate the good, I would not tell you to do so. And this is a very positive, optimistic outlook on life, that yes, we can as human beings experience this very deep sense of inner security. We can overcome the forces of darkness within us. And this means awakening, awakening to the light within the mind. So he's saying that this potential of experiencing the truth is within us and very, very possible. Coming on a retreat is a very big adventure. It's going deeply inside and exploring the forces of darkness and the forces of light within us. I was reading a book recently by a woman named Joanna Field. It was written, this particular book was written in 1934. And she 
was feeling a lot of dissatisfaction with her life at one point. And so she kept a diary for seven years. And she called this an experiment. She decided to study what in her life were the conditions for being happy. It's a very, very interesting book. So she kept a journal, and it's very honest. I appreciate it for that. She goes through a lot of difficulty and searching. And this is the end of the book. She says, By keeping a diary of what made me happy, I had discovered that happiness came when I was most widely aware. So I had finally come to the conclusion that my task was to become more and more aware, more and more understanding, with an understanding that was not at all the same thing as intellectual comprehension. And by finding that in order to be more and more aware, I had to be more and more still. I had not only come to see through my own eyes instead of at second hand, but I had also finally come to discover what was the way of escape from the imprisoning island of my own self-consciousness. Seven years of looking very closely and she discovered that she needed to be still so that she could see clearly and that that was what was going to bring her happiness. So we come on retreat with this great idea of becoming aware and more still. And usually when we attempt to be still and navigate our mind, we discover a lot of dark forces or energies within us. And we see that they prevent us from experiencing any deep kind of happiness or well-being. These forces of darkness are known in Buddhism as the forces of Mara, the armies of Mara. And there are ten. Dissatisfaction or discontent is the second army. First I'd like to explain a bit more about Mara. My intention in talking about Mara is to really encourage you to look at and open to the forces of darkness within you because otherwise one can't find the light. Carl Jung said that to show a person their shadow is to show them their light. Human beings tend to be quite afraid of these dark energies. They are things that we usually keep hidden, and when we keep them hidden, they become very destructive. The process of Vipassana helps us develop the power of attention 
the light to see this darkness clearly and to learn to work with these forces without drowning in them. In the early Buddhist texts, Mara appears as a deity and the deity is said to be the enemy of awakening. So Mara means the killer or the destroyer and this means the killer of life, the destroyer of life, being awake, alive. I was thinking today that it seems like it's, it's a constant battle to keep the mind or the attention awake and alive, a constant battle. Mara is that which is false. And you might ask yourself, well, what is it that is false? And what is false can be our perception when it's unlit, our perception when it's dark. We usually tend to walk around in a fog. It's like we're sleepwalking or numb, or sometimes it it can be seeming like we're dead. And this is why Mara is considered to be the destroyer of life because it's like we're (laughs) asleep while being alive. And we believe in our foggy perceptions and this covers the truth of things. It covers the true home within. It covers the true security within. And we can actually find a place where desire and hatred can't arise. It's known as the deathless. This is the place where greed and hatred can't take hold. When I first sat with Sayadaw Upandita from Burma in 1984, What I was initially struck by when he, when I would walk into the room for an interview is that he didn't seem to care at all about Michelle, the person. He didn't seem at all to care about my ways of being acceptable or likable. I tried very hard for him to appreciate my mask, my disguise, and he just didn't buy it. And it seemed like what he did see when I came in the room was an army of Mara at play or a factor of enlightenment out of balance or none of the factors of enlightenment were present. He just seemed to see things in regard to that battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And I sat with him again for five weeks last year And I saw this more clearly, what a deeply compassionate gift it can be for someone not to be seduced 
by my mask and to only care about bringing me home. It's a very deeply compassionate gift to be encouraged to find this home because it's the only security we really have. And in the next three months, you'll come to see that sometimes the meditation can seem like it's only a battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. We're all in the process of home-going. And Vipassana enables us to develop a clear attention that can help guide us home. This strong mind enables us to live in the world of the senses without being harmed, without being harmed by greed, hatred, and delusion. So the strong mind helps us overcome these forces, and that's why it's such a safe and incomparable home. Happiness in in Vipassana is having this strong mind. And it's the happiness that comes each time we're not a victim of what's happening. We see it clearly instead of being a victim. That's the happiness. And it can be very, very subtle (laughs) at times and ephemeral. So we come on retreat and we leave behind us many sensual pleasures and many sensual objects. And you might find that this place seems too crowded or there's not enough food, or too much food, or (laughs) uh, there's not enough coffee, or we made too long a schedule too quickly, or your zafu might be too hard. Um, You might want to get up later or go to bed earlier. There might be too many flies. (laughs) I don't know who invited all these flies. (laughs) these little tiny gurus. Usually, within a few days, there's something that's happening that we find fault with. And this is dissatisfaction. I don't know anybody who doesn't have this happen. It's the second army of Mara. It can also be the dissatisfaction that you feel with your practice itself, your meditation. On this planet, these days, there are many people conditioned to think that happiness will come from getting a certain amount of material wealth or material comfort. It's sometimes called the American dream in America. (laughs) And it is a dream. 
And this great dream of having deep contentment come from accumulating a certain amount of security materially, usually, um, if you've made it to a three-month course, (laughs) you've seen through it a bit. Um, So on retreat, the satisfaction initially comes in terms of the environment not being quite the way we want it. We may have gotten a roommate and might have wanted a single room. Whatever it is, that's one factor, the environment. The other is that the routine is usually pretty boring. The biggest thing that happens is lunch. So it's compared to what you came from, (laughs) it's pretty uh, low in stimulation. The third thing that can be uh, a problem is the food, in some way, for us. And the fourth is that our practice never will seem good enough. And that's usually the one that causes us us the most pain or discontent. And this discontent can lead to irritation with ourselves or with our life here at the retreat. And there's a quote from Trungpa that I like a lot in regard to this. He says that we are not talking about philosophy, but we are talking about how on earth, how in the name of heaven and earth, we can actually become decent human beings without having to entertain ourselves from here to the next corner. The constant search for immediate entertainment is a big problem. What can I do next? How can I save myself from boredom? The first few days of a retreat are quite difficult. I always feel like if I make it through the first three days, it's a great accomplishment in itself. Um, You might hear us say we're supposed to take one breath at a time, or one step at a time, but it hardly ever seems good enough, if you're honest. If only I had no more knee pain, then I would be happy. If only there were more desserts, then I would be happy. If only it was warmer or cooler. If only I had more concentration. If only it was sunnier. The mind can make a problem out of anything. And if you look very carefully at how much of your life is acceptable to you. How much of your life experience is really acceptable to you? If you're very honest, you'll see that about 98% isn't acceptable. There's sleepiness, there's restlessness, there's boredom, there's hot daggers in the knees, there's a feeling hopeless or afraid or angry. There's so much that's happening that we think shouldn't be happening. 
the beginning of some contentment happens when there's a willingness to be with a whole range of experience that normally isn't acceptable to us, that we're usually running away from and entertaining ourselves to avoid. And so being able to have the attitude that I'm going to try to be with whatever's happening, it's a revolution. It's very radical. It's so different than what we're conditioned to believe in. And when we can do this, we're not manipulating anymore. We're not controlling anymore. And there's more and more freedom possible. Our happiness is so fragile, so delicate, and so relative. This year I was um, in Hawaii, living in Hawaii, and I was very busy last year and earlier in the year. And I had this great idea that I wanted to be alone. And so I planned this trip to a beach on the north shore of the island that I live on with Steve. And I got to the beach, and it was such a um, setup because I had been planning this for weeks, and it was this big idea of being alone on the beach. Uh, and I hadn't done this for a long time. So I got to the beach, and I went down the beach, and I put my towel down and laid down. It was like, <gasps> I went as far away from people as I could. And then within about 10 minutes, this man came down the beach. And you know, the whole beach was empty. And he put his towel right down next to me and laid down. And I just watched my mind. There was so much aversion. <laughs> Why couldn't he put his towel at least 20 feet down the beach? Or, you know, I was just really angry at him. Uh, I was very unhappy. And then in about 10 or 15 minutes, he got up and he went for a walk. And I was so happy. I was just so happy he went for a walk. And I was lying there alone again, happy, heavy. He came back, aversion, aversion, <laughs> really angry again. So then I decided I'd go for a walk. So I went down the beach. And it felt more and more unsafe, you know, further and further away from people. And I got to a place where I could go into the water and swim a bit. It's all reef there. And it's hard to find a place to even dunk into. I was way down the beach. And I went in the water, and I had put my bag down on the beach. And I turned around, and I came up, and I saw this man come out from the shadows and grab my bag. Uh, and he was a very scary-looking man. And I was really afraid. And then I saw this man that was sitting next to me <laughs> walking down the beach. And I was so happy. I, <laughs> I loved him. It's like, oh boy, there he is. And it's amazing to watch the mind <laughs> where it went from, he went from my enemy to my friend, to my enemy to my friend, within a half an hour. It was fascinating. Uh, we do this over and over and over. And in regard to the practice, it becomes 
so subtle that we can hardly see that this is what we're doing. So say the instructions are, be, are to be mindful. And then you're mindful for two seconds, or two minutes, or two hours, or whatever it is. And then we love ourselves, you know, and we're so happy, and everything is great, and everything's going great. And usually we want to share the Dhamma with our friends and our relatives, and we're going, you know, writing letters home, and it's just, we're just buoyant and light and excited. And we get attached. And we think, oh no, there's only three months to practice. <laughs> and then <laughs> it'll change. And let's say there's no mindfulness for two days, or five hours, or two weeks, or whatever it is. And it's terrible. We hate ourselves. We can't believe we'd even tell anybody about this practice. And we can't believe we're here. Can't believe we even thought of coming to this horrible practice. And we usually count the days. I don't know how many of you know how many days are left. But usually, everybody knows, <laughs> and everybody counts, no matter how good it's going. There's a little record in our heads, oh yeah, only 89 more days, only <laughs> 88 more days. Um, we swing back and forth between it being great and us being ecstatic because we're mindful, and it being lousy because we can't do it. It's, we don't have enough concentration, or whatever. And this discontent, this dissatisfaction occurs because our happiness is dependent on what's happening. And whenever our happiness is dependent on what's happening, it's incredibly fragile. Because we can't control what's happening. And one thing that I see that's so amazing about us is that we're almost constantly judging each moment as somehow not being good enough. It's extraordinary. Often this dissatisfaction or discontent can lead to two poles. It can lead to the pole of us hating ourselves or to the other pole of us hating others. And when it comes from a kind of self-judging, hating ourselves, the dissatisfaction usually goes from sadness to despair to self-pity. And the kind of thoughts that come about are, I can't do this, or I'm the worst yogi here. Um, this proves that I'm no good like I thought. Or, uh, I hate myself. Those kind of thoughts occur. And the other pull that can happen is all around judging or comparing other people. Or that person swallows too much. That person walks too fast. <laughs> that person sits funny. Whatever it is, that person eats too slow. Um, what's that person doing here anyway? These are the kind of thoughts that come.
when this dissatisfaction is happening, we miss the whole show. We miss the sound of a bird singing, and we miss the touch of a beautiful sunset. We miss the beauty of a falling leaf. Each moment is so delicate and so total and so beautiful and full, and we miss it. As we practice and we start learning about this willingness to be open to the whole experience that life provides us, we start not swinging so much from our happiness coming from pleasurable feelings or to depression when things are difficult. There's less swing between those two poles. And, and when we can do this, we start learning about appreciation, appreciating whatever's happening, no matter what it is. And this is called the path of purification. And if you think about it, whenever there's a moment of mindfulness, there's a very pure attention. And this purity of attention cleans the mind. And this purity makes space for the darkness to emerge. And we usually just, it's very hard for us to understand that this is good, (laughs) that this is the path. The path is one of having a purity of attention, and that cleans the mind so that the dirt can appear. And we can actually start to appreciate that. We can actually start to appreciate that the dirt appears, and that that's good because we're getting a chance to work with it and see it clearly, and clean it. It's incredible, that gift of appreciation for what this path is doing, why we're on the journey. At the beginning of the retreat, it's important to look at discontent in regard to the instructions. Because if you're ever feeling that you're supposed to be mindful every single moment, and then you're not, (laughs) it can be uh, very easy to feel dissatisfied and judge oneself. And it's important to keep this in perspective. It's impossible to be microscopic every single moment the second day of a course. Just just keep it in perspective. Uh, coming on a course like this is like being put in a straitjacket. It's, it's quite a shift for most of you, unless you were doing a lot of sitting right before this. It's a major change. And to just know that you do the best you can. Another layer that can happen with dissatisfaction is that the more that you pay attention, the more you'll see that you're not paying attention. The more you practice, the more you'll see how much the mind goes off. 
And there's a goodness in this because the people that practice for a long time have a very deep acceptance of this. You know, that this is what happens, the mind goes off. The newer one is to the practice, the more we fight that. But it is sometimes a challenge, the more you practice, to be able to cope with how much you see when when isn't being mindful. And it's very important to have a long-range view, a very long-range view. When Stephen and I went to teach in South Africa two years ago, I noticed that the people who cried the most initially in the interviews or were suffering the most openly were the people who were dealing the most directly with apartheid and trying to change it. And so their suffering was much more visible because they were on the front lines. They were really working with the suffering. And it's very much the same in coming to a retreat like this. You're on the front lines. And your suffering will be more visible. And that's great. It's really wonderful. It makes us very happy to see that. (laughs) Because that means it's becoming visible and workable. This long-range view is very important. Um, This woman, Joanna Field, in her book, A Life of One's Own, said that the expectation of happiness was generally fatal for her. That whenever she expected some kind of event or situation to bring her happiness, that it made the stream of delight dry up at the source. And she also said that if I expected results from what I did, I'd be very exasperated. Expectations. Beware of expectations. And again, the longer you practice, the more you have to beware of expectations. I wonder if this course is going to be better than the last course, or worse. Expecting to reach certain states. Expecting sleepiness to go away. Expecting the mind to get quiet immediately. Anytime we have a model for what we think should be happening, it's very, very painful. It makes for suffering. There's a line from a poem that I like a lot. It says, smearing the darkness of expectation across experience. Smearing the darkness of expectation across experience. Expectation brings this darkness. It brings exasperation. it dries up the source of delight and joy. 
And the opposite of expectation is letting go. Just being with what's happening, no matter what it is. It's the happiness that comes from just being aware. And this process takes incredible patience with ourselves. We want to be superhuman overnight. And the mind is an incredibly formidable opponent. (laughs) Otherwise, you'd be much more (laughs) happy and there'd be a lot more well-being in this world. And when we're working so hard, we can be very easily frustrated especially when we see how much of our precious life we're wasting by not being awake. These very precious, precious lives we have. Our suffering can be transformed into a very profound compassion for ourselves and others on this path of developing wisdom. And it's important to remember what a great, great thing you're doing, developing this understanding and this compassion. And it's very easy to forget this in the day-to-day aches and pains and sleepiness and restlessness and desires and fears and wandering mind. It's very easy to lose perspective and what a great thing you're doing. There's a quote that I really like a lot as a metaphor for the spiritual journey. And a woman named Ruth Sanford wrote this after visiting South Africa two summers ago. And she says that a compassionate person seeing a butterfly struggling to free itself from its cocoon and wanting to help, very gently loosened the filaments to form an opening. The butterfly was freed, emerged from the cocoon, and fluttered about, but could not fly. What the compassionate person did not know was that only through the birth struggle can the wings grow strong enough for flight. Its shortened life was spent on the ground. It never knew freedom. It never really lived. The spiritual journey is this birth struggle. And we all have to go through that bringing forth of our own light, our own strong wings, ourselves. And part of this birth struggle is opening to Mara, opening to our cocoon, our darkness within us. One of the deepest levels that I know of in terms of a long-range view that can nourish and sustain us on our spiritual journey in regard to happiness is to have a very deep delight in the truth. 
I've mentioned many things, but I think that this is the deepest kind of happiness, is this very deep delight in the truth, no matter what it is. And it's important to respect our cocoon, to respect our defense systems. They protected us. We developed them as children, and they serve a purpose to protect us from too much pain. And we can slowly grow out of our cocoon in our own way and in our own time, out of the darkness. So the stronger our minds are, the stronger the purity of the attention that we develop, the more inner security we have and the more we can come out of our cocoon the less we need that outer defense system. So we can have a very deep commitment to be mindful without the struggle of self-hatred or hating others if we do miss a lot of the show, if we're having difficulty. We can learn to appreciate the times that we're awake and clear and it's going easy or effortless and also to have the acceptance and the tolerance for the difficult times. This appreciation brings more and more joy, and this joy is the gateway to enlightenment. Joy is the gateway to enlightenment. This joy creates lightness and interest rather than boredom. And the joy brings deep satisfaction and inner contentment. And this joy helps us transform our difficulties into our best teachers, like the flies. Mara is the appearance of things. It's the dance of life and shadow. It's the play of opposites like male and female, or gain and loss, rich or poor, cold and hot, pleasure and pain. There is an inner security that isn't affected by this play of appearances. And the Buddha assured us that we can develop a mind that can illuminate and dance with this play of appearances. It brings about a buoyancy rather than a drowning in the appearances. And the Buddha invited everyone to see for themselves. He said that no one can see who does not kindle a light of their own. This is a quote from a man named Stephen Butterfield from an article called On Being Unable to Breathe. And this man has a disease which is an inflammation of his lungs. And what this inflammation does is that um, it scars the surface tissue of his lungs so that the oxygen can't pass through and it's more and more difficult to breathe. It's the disease gets stronger. 
So he wrote an article about how he's learning to work with this in relationship to the practice. He says it's more difficult to be speedy about anything when your supply of oxygen is exhausted simply by making a bed. When I had the energy for speed, I wasn't mindful of time. If I was late for an appointment, I might dash out the door, spin the wheels and get stuck in the driveway. Then I had to dash in for a shovel and a bag of sand. If I left the book I needed upstairs, I would have to make an extra trip for it. After a whole day of this kind of waste, no wonder we feel drained and just want to lie down and complain about our bad day. Now imagine that you are unable to dash one trip up the stairs and you have to sit for a few minutes to pay for the oxygen debt. Rushing anywhere for any reason leaves you gasping like a fish on a dock. You have to give yourself space and time to recover from the most trivial, wasted effort. To get angry about having to move so slow just cranks up more waste. What are you going to do with the anger? Throw something? That will make you gasp and pant all the more. But giving yourself space and time is also giving yourself kindness. No pressure. No speed. Do I really need that trip up the stairs? When I am there, what am I forgetting? What can I take down with me so that I won't have to come back in two minutes? If my car is stuck on the ice, how can I handle it to avoid physical expenditure? Take it easy. Look around. Sitting calmly and looking around, I notice the lavender ripples of light on the snow in a field and the stubble of dead weeds coming up through the crust. The snow makes a separate system of rings around each stalk. No two systems are alike, but they all show the direction and patterns of the wind. How important is it that I go anywhere? Giving yourself space and time is giving yourself kindness. Giving yourself space and time is giving yourself kindness. Take it easy. Look around. I'd like to just end with a little quote from um, an Ojibwe Indian native person. Song of the Thunders. 
Sometimes I go about in pity for myself. And all the while a great wind is carrying me across the sky. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.